Hey everyone, we've got a new pitch website, pitchpodcast.fm. Comment on your favorite episodes, get all the latest news and discuss the podcast with us, pitchpodcast.fm. If you become a subscriber, you'll be able to access real pitches and ad-free episodes. Watch member-only live streams starring us, your hosts, and ask questions we'll answer in future pitch episodes. Join us at pitchpodcast.fm and help us bring you more great content. Make sure and listen to today's episode all the way through to the end as I'll share a really cool collab our guest is doing through his company with some really big writers that they're offering to you for free. Hi, welcome to another episode of Pitch. I'm Leah St. Marie. And I'm Angel. And today we have a very special guest, Franklin Leonard who is a film and television producer and entrepreneur and CEO and founder of The Blacklist. Welcome, Franklin. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on, man. It's a real real treat for both of us and a lot of our listeners, I'm assuming. I mean, I hope so. At least that expectations low and then over-deliver ideally. (laughs) That's that's a great plan of action. Love that. That's great. So I have a great first question for you. What was your first high-five career moment when you say like, like, as in people, like we were high-fiving after it happened or like, how, how think, do we mean here? You know, so I have a background in journalism and we would high-five a lot in the room, but I like to um, not high-five people. I do it like internally. Like, like I have the same yeah, feeling. Yeah. The spirit of a high-five. Yeah. So, so that. But if there's any times where you actually gave another person a high-five, that would be incredible to hear about as well. I, I can't think of a, of a specific, like, actual moment in which we, I high-fived somebody. Um, and I think there are a lot of moments like that in, in any career. Otherwise, you probably try to find a new career, uh, especially yeah. in, in this business. I mean, look, the, the founding of The Blacklist uh, was sort of a combo high-five moment and then an immediate, immediately followed by, oh, God, what have I done uh, moment because I was... <laughs> sure that the creation of this thing was going to get me fired and sort of run out of town on rails. Um, yeah. You know, I think getting the job, getting the phone call, offering me the job to work for Sidney Pollock and Anthony Minghella, um as their development executive in Los Angeles was probably like, I remember I was driving in the car when Sidney called me and that was, that was definitely a high point for sure early on. Um, but it's hard to say. I mean, like, ask me at a different time and I'd probably be able to hit you with like a dozen other moments, right? Reading a great script, you know, hearing that your boss loved a great script that you shared with them, uh, being in the room with a, for a pitch with a writer who just comes in with something that you never imagined, but it's amazing. And you just want to run and tell everybody at your company, like, oh, this is how we're doing it. Like all of those are high five moments, I think, for me. And, and it's really you know, stringing, string together enough of those and you have a really special career. Were there moments of objective feedback about you starting this blacklist that actually made you think this might be a mistake? Were people giving you the feedback, hey, well, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be collating. Don't reach out. Don't try to like push these unproduced scripts. No, I don't think that's happened exactly. You know, I made it anonymously first. It really was. I was a junior executive at Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. My job was to find great scripts and great writers. I felt like I was doing a very bad job of it. And I knew that, you know, I would take home a banker's box full of 20 or 30 scripts every weekend and try to get through most of them. And most of the things that I was was reading weren't things that I wanted to run into my boss's office and slam down on his desk and say, this is your priority now, which really has to be the standard. 
And so when I did the survey, I did it anonymously. No one knew that it was me that had created it. So it wasn't that I was getting people telling me, hey, man, maybe don't do that. It was that I remember thinking that if that it was not a terribly brilliant idea to survey everybody and ask them about their favorite screenplays. And if there wasn't some unknown Hollywood rule of the road preventing people from doing that, surely they wouldn't have done it. And I was just too stupid to know that that rule didn't exist. So when it became something of a viral sensation in early 2006, after the first list went out, I was like, oh man, like when I, when I am discovered as the person that made this, it's going to go badly for me. And I think that, that really didn't change until six months into 2006 when an agent called me and pitched me a new client and ended that pitch by saying, hey, look, don't tell anybody, but I have it on really good authority. This is going to be the number one script on next year's blacklist. And I had already decided like I was not going to do another one. No one could find out that it was me. And here was somebody pitching me on the theoretical notion that this script would be on the list, which made me realize that maybe this thing that I created had more value than I had anticipated. Going off of that, you've read... I don't even want to try to guess how many scripts in your career. Cause I was trying, I was trying to tally in the car the other day. I was like thousands upon thousands. Yeah. I think I'm comfortably over the 10,000 hour mark, um, mm -hmm. but I could not, I could not put a number to it, but it's, it, I would, I would say probably somewhere in that range, at least. I mean, I've been doing this for almost 20 years, so it's a lot. So you're the perfect person to ask this question to um, what page into reading do you know if you're going to bail or you know like this is landing just right? I don't think you can know that it's landing just right until the last page of a script. Um, I I really, I, I think it's very easy to know pretty quickly if, if this is not something you want to read or if you're dreading having to finish it, right? But I think, you know, every page that you read is sort of further evidence that this is as good as you hope it to be or not as good as you hope it to be. I think for me, especially having done this for as long as I have, I tend to stop reading when it's beyond my grandest imagination that what could follow from what I've read thus far can undo whatever damage has been done by what I've read thus far, right? And and that will vary script to script. Um, and, and I'm also, in that case, trusting my grandest imaginations to be at least semi uh, sort of on the level of the writers, right? Because maybe there's a writer out there that, that, that starts me out somewhere and then they have a plan for the back half of it or back third or final 10 pages that is beyond my imagination. And, and so I try to err on the side of like, you know, tie goes to the writer, but eventually you'll reach a point where you can say like, mm, there's nothing they can do that's going to make me when I'm finished with this, want to run, want to run around town and tell everybody about it or invest years of my life in trying to get it made. How did you find yourself in development? What, what were the qualifications? What was the process to convincing people? Hey, I can, I can read scripts and find you winners. So I, let's see, I graduated from college in the year 2000. I had been a, a, a social studies major, uh, which is really like social and political theory and like economic sociology and a bunch of other stuff. Um, I had run a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, or helped run a congressional campaign in Cincinnati, Ohio, right out of school. I wrote for the Guardian newspapers in Trinidad, which is where my mother's father is from. And then I went to McKinsey and Company as, and worked as a management consultant for two years. And... I got laid off from that job with about six months severance uh, with with the rest of my sort of uh, analyst class. 
and used that six months of severance to like figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Because at that point I was like 24 and was like, I probably need to make a plan. And I really didn't want to go to law school. And I happened to come out to law. I came out to Los Angeles for the month of March of 2003, just trying to see what was out here. Like I've always loved movies, but I grew up in West Central Georgia. There was no like direct route from where I came from to the industry. Um, I just happened to end up in this social slipstream as a result of where I went to college that people I knew now knew people in the industry. And so I had an interview at CAA as an, to be an assistant in the motion picture lit department my second day in Los Angeles. Um, I was offered that job the next day, and I started the following Monday um, with a two-week break a few weeks in to go back to New York, pack up my life, and move out to Los Angeles. Um, I was an assistant for a year, and I got my first development job as an executive working for John Goldwyn's production company on the Paramount lot. And that was just a standard interview. Um, you know, I'd gone to my boss, uh, a woman named Rowena Arguelles at CAA, and said, you know, I'm not looking to leave yet, but I also, like, would like to meet some people who would like to meet me and just learn more about how the industry functions. And and she turned around to me uh, and I'll always be thankful for this. And she said, look, you have no business being an assistant anymore. We'll get you an exec job. And she started making calls on my behalf. I had, you know, I think that was one of my first interviews. I went in and just sort of answered the questions that I was asked. Honestly, I was asked to read, I think two scripts and provide notes on them. So being, you know, an Apple polishing a student, I went home and wrote up like eight pages of notes on both of them that night um, and John Goldwyn offered me the job, and that was sort of I was I was on my way. I think it's a, probably a long answer to a, what, what was expected to be a brief answer, but no, it, it's yeah, great, that's that's sort of the I story. The it's steps answer, are great. Yeah, the details are wonderful, and often it takes it takes somebody championing you. Absolutely, I think in this absolutely in every in I think in every aspect of this business, it requires somebody willing to vouch for you. Mm -hmm. Right. Whether that's, hey, this person's script is good. You should read it. Hey, I worked with them before. They're a great collaborator. Um, hey, so and so, you know, said you should, you know, pull this to the top of the pile for your assistant interviews, whatever it is. Um, you know, this is a, an industry still where social currency really reigns. And I don't know that that's a good thing necessarily, by the way, but there are times when I've definitely been the beneficiary of it. And I'm certainly appreciative of all the people who've done it for me and try to pass that along in, in, in how I built my career. It makes um, sense because there's no standards in the industry. We're not in like aerospace. We're not in machining yeah. or any sort of like computer, you know, design. So we, we need some, some form of, Hey, this person can do the job and this person will do right by you other than like a technical degree, which proves proficiency. Right. I, I think that's right. I think that there's, or what I'd say is that the standards are a lot more subjective. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and so, Oftentimes, and the nature of the work is inherently collaborative. So, you know, with the exception of I'm going to hire a writer to go off into a room and then deliver me a finished script, for the most part, roles in this industry are extremely collaborative. And so you want to know that this person that you are going to spend a lot of time with is somebody who will add value in a sort of business way, but also like not be an absolute terror. Uh, and detract from your, you know, experience of being a human being having to go to work every day. I think that's also one of the the kind of invisible jobs of a creative producer or a creative executive is they're going to find a script, find a person, they're going to advocate for it because their belief in the story and how it should be told is so strong. And this is this is me coming off of just having watched The Offer and Robert Evans through that through that TV series was just 
profound in how he advocated for the script for the creatives. I think that's right. I think that in finding scripts, though, the notion that it should be sort of uh, hand-to-hand, person-to-person is actually a really flawed notion, right? This idea that individuals are the best way at scale to to, uh, find and curate the best material, I think is a deeply flawed one. And I think it's actually like a real failure of Hollywood as a marketplace uh, for material and for labor to to put itself in the best position right like imagine a sports league that said hey if you want to play professional basketball uh, let's say let's take the nba if the nba said hey if you want to play professional basketball first move to new york city play pickup basketball at the you know concrete uh parks around uh, their, mm-hmm. our midtown headquarters and if you're good we'll we'll assign you to a team right historically that's very much the way hollywood has functioned especially as it applies to screenwriters right like how do I become a professional screenwriter? Well, move to Los Angeles, network until someone pays attention to you. And if your script is good, then you'll probably have a professional career. That's backwards. And it's not just bad for aspiring writers, it's bad for the industry because it means that you're not finding and recruiting and hiring the best possible writers. You're just hiring who's close. Um, and that often means uh, you know, people whose parents are, or social or part of their social group are already in the industry or people who can afford to move to Los Angeles network with the right people and then get their scripts read. Um, you know, if you're a single parent in Greensboro, North Carolina, and you, you know, your kids come home from school and you're like, pack up the minivan, we're moving to LA because mommy or daddy's going to be a screenwriter. You might not be making the best decisions as a parent, but it doesn't mean you're not a good screenwriter. And, and Hollywood should be going out like, you know, af- like, like sports teams recruit to find the talent where it is so that if you have talent, we can then find a way for you to work in this industry. And that, that's really why the Blacklist website exists. Speaking of why the Blacklist website exists, um, for like our listeners who aren't super in the know, yeah. I, I want to give a quick description of what I think the Blacklist is, right? It's a, it's the best, it's a list of the best unproduced scripts that have been floating around Hollywood as voted by industry insiders, development executives, agents, and managers. Is that, does that sound about right? Yeah, that's an accurate characterization of the annual Blacklist, yeah. So for people who, like if my mom's listening, what does what is the value that the Blacklist offers the industry that didn't exist before the blacklist was before you were doing your thing like why like why is it so important to the people in the industry for someone who's not in the industry can you explain that yeah well i'll talk about it from the point of about the blacklist website specifically because i think is, is that sort of what you're asking or is it just That's great a, yeah so you know I, I mentioned before the idea of the nba encouraging everybody to move to new york and play basketball nearby their headquarters in order to be sort of scouted um, that's very much the way Hollywood has existed historically, right? If you want to be a screenwriter, move to LA, network until someone pays attention to you. What the Blacklist website allows is for anybody on earth who has an English language screenplay, you can upload it to our, well, you can create a writer profile on our website entirely for free. So if somebody's looking for something that you've uh, written, they can do the search on the website, find you and reach out to you directly. But let's say you want uh, a more like a, a less a, a less uh, friction driven approach. Um, you know, you can upload your script for a fee. You can pay for feedback from readers that we've hired based on their experience and knowledge of the marketplace. You get that feedback back in an average of about four days. If the feedback 
indicates less than a full and close reading of your work, you can email us at customer support and say, hey, something's not right here and we'll address it immediately, which you know you can't do if you're submitting to a contest because you only get the result months on. Sure. Uh, and then if, you're, if your script is well received by one of our readers, like if they love it, uh, we start telling everybody in Hollywood, hey, everybody, this is a really good thing. You should pay attention to it. Um, and the way we structured the site is that if you get really enthusiastic response, if you get an eight out of 10 or better, which is roughly three and a half percent of the evaluations we've provided historically, we then offer you free months of hosting on the website and more free evaluations so you can get more feedback and we can gather more information about just how good your thing is and just how people are responding to it. So we can tell the rest of the industry with greater and greater degrees of certainty and enthusiasm, hey, y'all, seriously, pay attention to this. Um, and then we sort of step aside. Um, but the idea is sort of fundamentally that A, Hollywood needs a scalable uh, infrastructure to identify talent and quality among, among screenwriters globally. Two, screenwriters have a right to expect if they're, especially if they're spending money, but I think generally, if you're sort of submitting your work anywhere, you have a right to expect a fast response, a transparent response, an accountable response about who is evaluating your screenplay and why they came to the conclusions that they did. If it's good, there should be immediate upside for you because people should be telling everybody in Hollywood, hey, this is really good. You should you should do something with it. And there shouldn't be an incentive structure that encourages you to spend more money by, for example, enter, entering more and more contests to prove that your thing is good. If your thing is good, you should have to spend less money to tell everybody how good it is, not more. Um, and that's why all of the opportunities that you can get through the annual, through the Blacklist website, whether it's our screenwriters lab, is whether it's uh, you know development deals at studios, inclusion on a diversity list. You know we distributed more than eight hundred thousand dollars directly to writers last year alone, uh, wow. which is you know five times as much as the Nickel Fellowship more than 20 times as much as the Austin Film Festival. And there was no additional cost to any writer to submit to those programs once their material was already on the website. Wow, that's amazing. You mentioned something about writing before we asked you this previous question, and I just wanted to piggyback off of that. What can screenwriters be doing besides writing to help their careers? Um. First and foremost, I'm going to steal from Scott Myers, who does our sort of screenwriting craft, uh, screenwriting craft blog at the Blacklist. Um, you know, his mantra is, uh, is read scripts, watch movies, write pages. Um, and I think that's that is the best guide to being a great screenwriter. Um, I would add to that that there's some aspect of just living your life. Um, have social relationships, get your heart broken, uh, be ambitious, dream big, fail, succeed, uh, because all of those, those experiences of being a human being are what is going to guide and inform the stories that you try to tell, how you choose to tell them, and, and what stories uh, you want to tell emotionally and how you do it. So those are the big things. I can't emphasize enough that my belief that most aspiring professional writers spend too much time thinking about networking and how to get their work to somebody who can read it and not not enough time on the craft uh, of writing something great. Um, I'm stealing this from another writer who I actually, I can't remember who said this, but I think it's, it's the wisdom is incredible. Like worry less about um, getting your work to someone and worry more about writing something that makes people want to get to know you. That's a really helpful way to frame it up. That's great. 
Because here's the thing. If you write something that is absolutely fire, like, it, like if you've got that thing, once one person gets it or a few people get it, and again, I think the Blacklist has created an infrastructure that like literally does this on steroids. But once a few people get it in their hands, everybody will know about it. It, it, those things are rare and they are valuable and and people get very very excited when someone does something incredible it it is you know that's not to say that the system is a meritocracy or that you know it's a meritocracy in the long run but it is absolutely true that for a certain kind of brilliant screenplay um word travels fast so for the people who are turning out those brilliant screenplays who have been in the blacklist ecosystem uh, I think uh, in a couple of interviews, you were basically saying about 30% of the uh, scripts that go on the blacklist go on to be produced. Is that number still about the same? Give or, yeah, it, it varies based on the time of year. Uh, and certainly COVID, I think, affected a little bit of those numbers. But yeah, at any given point, the these are scripts. This is a number from the annual blacklist, right? The yeah. annual survey, not the website. And I think it's sure. very important that I, I make that distinction as clear as possible. But yeah, anywhere between thirty and forty percent of the scripts on the annual list have been produced. Um, they've won, I think it's like fifty Oscars from two hundred and eighty nominations, um, four best pictures, and twelve screenwriting Oscars since two thousand seven. Um, and maybe the most exciting thing, certainly for my mother, uh, Harvard Business School did a study on the annual list and found that movies made from scripts on the list, controlling for all other factors, make about 90% more in revenue than movies made from scripts not on the list. Which I think, you know, look, I can't take credit for having made those movies. I didn't produce them, gaff them, write them, do craft service on them. But I do think it, we can take credit for building a metal detector that, that like finds really good stuff. And I think it also, more importantly, validates the thesis that like, Great writing is kind of the best indicator of future success. It's not a guarantee, but it is certainly from a probabilistic approach to like, hey, I've got these 10 things. Which one should I make? Make the best screenplays. And that is probably your best strategic uh, approach. It's kind of like instant audience testing. That's, you know, it's funny. I tweeted about this literally earlier today because a lot of people were talking about AI and um, and sort of gut instinct approaches to selecting things. And I don't think any one individual is going to be great at doing that alone. I mean, look, I'm, I'm willing to have individuals put their gut instincts against other methods. But as in a lot of places, aggregate audience response to screenplay is probably your best proxy for aggregate audience response to movie. So if you have something that people, a lot of people who know screenplays love the screenplay, you've got a much better chance at having a movie where people who love movies are going to love the movie. What are your personal feelings on the excellent scripts that never get made because this is like something I keep coming back to. And part of the reason why we're doing the podcast is because, you know, a, a novel will live on forever and people can buy it as long as it's in print, right? A screenplay, an excellent one basically doesn't go beyond the industry unless it's published and a pitch even less, it, you know, has less exposure. An excellent pitch to an excellent story dies once it's not made. An excellent script dies if it doesn't get made, basically. What are your personal feelings and what, what, how can you explain to someone who's not in the industry why that happens? So I, I think the screenplay as a as a work of art is is an odd one, right? Because it's an intermediary form. It is a thing that is written to be eventually made as something else, right? It's almost like an architectural blueprint. Exactly. I'm sure, yeah. And I'm sure there are incredible architectural blueprints that for whatever reason 
can't be made as actual buildings, but that doesn't mean that the blueprint itself is in any way lacking within the form of blueprints. Like I'm, I'm improvising a little bit here, but I think the idea probably holds. No, the analogy um, totally works. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why great screenplays don't get made, right? Uh, some of them are financial considerations. You know, the screenplay may be brilliant, but if you look at the screenplay and say, okay, realistically, how big is the audience for this movie? In, in my wildest dreams. And like, how much will it cost to make? You know, when we're talking about large scale capital investments of one, 20, $200 million, that probably needs to be part of the consideration, right? Because, you know, very few filmmakers I know want to make only one movie. And if you make a movie that costs a ton of money and has no audience, good luck making the next movie, even if the thing ends up being incredible. So I think that's part of the reason why some things don't get made. Sometimes there are rights issues. There are tons of scripts every year on the blacklist that are sort of DOA from an eventual film perspective because you're just never going to get the rights to them. Um, and then there's just, you know, sort of bizarre quirks of history. Things end up in development for forever and get, you know, sort of laid off by a studio and then somebody else picks it up and development runs aground again. I think the reality, though, too, is, is that a great screen, I tweeted this a few times, too, a great screenplay really never dies. And there are so many examples of scripts that were on the blacklist 5, 10, 15 years ago now that then go into production and end up being great successes. I mean, my favorite example of this, and I think this probably speaks to what can be next for a great screenplay that for whatever reason hasn't been made or can't be made, is the story of Succession. You know, uh, Succession began its life, arguably, as a feature screenplay written by Jesse Armstrong about the Murdoch family. You know, it is about Rupert Murdoch gathering his children to decide how he is going to divvy up the company and who's going to take over. And it made the annual blacklist. I think it was in 2010. And I think a lot of people tried to figure it out, but ultimately decided, like, I don't know if making a movie about Rupert Murdoch is is the right move for a lot of reasons. Right. And, and Jesse ended up, you know, reformulating that into the pilot and, and the rest of succession. And now we have one of the greatest television shows of all time. So I don't know that, that any pitch or any screenplay that is truly great necessarily dies. I think it probably has to reformulate itself or have incredible patience um, to eventually sort of take its final form. I sound like I'm talking about Pokemon, but... No, it makes total <laughs> sense, man. It, it, it's totally, totally apt and kind of along the lines of what I'm thinking about. But I'm curious, do you have any personal scripts over the years that you're like, oh, man... Of 2008, there was this, there's this one, and it just, oh, it, 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 like the stars just never aligned, but it's totally doable. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of those. Um, one that has been on my mind a lot recently, and, and it's funny because the blacklist is actually attached to, to produce it, uh, is a script called Resurface that was on the blacklist, I think around 2008. And it's literally the story of two people in an underwater submersible after an earthquake in the Mariana Trench just trying to get to the surface like that it's it's i've always pitched it as gravity underwater um yeah, and it's I, I think it's exceptionally well written the writer clearly did a ton of work on getting the science of it right and you know given the news today um and, and over the last week i it, it strikes me as being something that that could probably be quite an extraordinary film and maybe people now understand the relevance but again that was written 15 years ago uh, if not more. And so I, I think that times change, people's interests change, the insight that you provide in a great piece of work, a great piece of storytelling may be more relevant at some point in the future. Um, 
And then that's why also like continue generating work. You, you've created something that has value and that value is variable and changes over time, but it definitely still has value if it is truly great. So continue to generate great work that will have value and maybe it, you know, eventually that value will be such a, such that you can collect on it. Um, but it's definitely frustrating. Being in this industry, and Angel and I have talked about this on many an occasion, it's a matter of having equal parts fortitude and follow through. Outside of just the business of what art is and writing is, if you don't have both of those things, I don't think that you have any staying power because it takes, you just said, 15 years. It takes a really long time to get something made. And I think if you're not attuned to that, when you come into the industry and you find it out later, it's kind of gut-wrenching. I think think that's absolutely right. I would add to that optimism. Um, I think that like a practice of optimism is necessary because making a movie, having a successful career of this sort is, is almost, it's not likely for anybody. And so you have to believe that it is possible uh, and then you have to commit to the work and discipline uh, in order to do it. But that that work is a fundamental act of optimism in my mind. It's a great frame up. I, I often think about fortitude for me isn't necessarily like an unrelenting push forward toward a goal, but giving grace in the moments where you're like, I don't know how I can continue to go forward. And yet eventually finding myself going forward anyway right yeah. it's not it's and it's different for everybody but it's been a it's a really interesting journey for me personally to find all of these elements that are necessary to just stick around long enough and to continue to get better to then like make the connections so when people are like oh yeah your work is now undeniable of course it's you're gonna have a career but it's like it's a long winding path and angel you were talking about that jewish writer that was talking about what is necessary um to be to be creative what's um what's the staying power i don't i don't remember the rest of it but it'll come to you after i say this i think okay one of my favorite questions to ask um someone is if nobody else existed in the world and it was just you would you still have the fire to do that thing and i think i think screenwriting is a little different because the script is yours but following through with the script is the movie and it's collaborative. So it isn't yours because at the end of it is the audience. So for me, um, moment of truth, I wouldn't still write scripts if nobody else existed in the world and it was just me, but I would still write poetry. Wow. That's fascinating. I would, I would, I would still write scripts. So that was my question. Would you still do? Yeah. Cause for, for me and Franklin, I mean, you, you've probably met and dealt with far more writers than I have, but for me, the, the, the process is the reward. Right, the the process of breaking story, finding a way to see is this idea and what, I, what I'm trying to say is it fully fleshed out and am I excited about it? Because I I, I never know if someone's going to read my script or if it's going to get made into a movie. So how else mm-hmm. do I continue on? I gotta I gotta find reward in it day to day for me personally. Do you think you would still write in screenplay form as opposed to writing novels or? I, I would, and it's because I'm a, I wouldn't say I'm a freak for economy, but... I mean, there are a lot of economical fiction writers. Yeah. You know, Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway wasn't like just throwing around words for no reason. Touche. Yeah. Very, very true. Um, and I'm actually tackling my first novel right now. So after 20 years of thinking 
in screenplay format, I'm like, okay, how do I let myself be economical and effective without it being beholden to the inherent, you know, limitations of screenplay pages, right? Yeah. So I would still write because story ultimately is the thing that I'm finding that I'm obsessed with and, and breaking that and finding ways to flesh it out. So I would still write screenplays just because I like I like the I like the structure. I like the rigid nature of it. Yeah, there, there's no chance that I'd be doing what I was doing if if no one else existed because there'd really be no point. What would you be doing? I don't know. I mean, if we're assuming sort of like a a, a situation where I'm the only person on Earth, mm-hmm. uh, I have no idea. I'd probably be reading a lot if I if I'm totally honest. Like I think if I'm the only person left, uh, the best proxy for a human life is probably reading and watching movies and television. Uh, I, I imagine that I would be spending a lot of my time doing that and presumably foraging for food. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's and, I, and I think that's what's so powerful about storytelling for me is that it's a, it's a, it's a proxy or it's a connection for, it's a proxy for connection to other human beings and an explanation about this life I'm living. When that's exactly, a, that's exactly right. Right. When I there's mean, not a friend there, I can turn on a movie and some of my suffering mm-hmm. is alleviated by being involved in these people's lives. Well, and, and this is for me, I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about in Hollywood uh, and in the in the context of of sort of making movies and aspiring to write movies is that fundamentally, you know, what Hollywood does is project stories into people's eyeballs 40 feet high or four inches high on their personal devices around the world. And the stories that we choose to tell, how we choose to tell them, who we populate them with uh is how a lot of people learn about the world around them. Um, And I think that we haven't, as an industry, taken responsibility for the ways in which we failed the world in communicating about the world. Um, And and that goes as far back as Birth of a Nation being the industry's first uh, blockbuster that goes to how we have talked about what is appropriate in terms of male and female relationships right like me too is is in large consequence is, is in large part a consequence of the stories we tell each other about what is acceptable ways to treat other human beings and if you look at a lot of movies that that are beloved you're like mm-hmm. don't love that right and and it's not a coincidence that the vast majority of those movies like overwhelmingly so were written and directed by men greenlit by men produced by men, et cetera. Um, and so I think a, a, another conversation that we just have to have to have as an industry is that like these stories are a public good and we ha- we are responsible for appropriately tending to that public good, even if it is also a, you know, a commercial industry in a highly capitalistic society. We were talking about champions earlier and I think the blacklist is such a great and creative way to bring representation to the forefront of Hollywood because you're right. It hasn't, it hasn't existed in the past, all those men in all of those rooms writing all of those scripts, but Angel, um, I could see that you wanted to ask a question. I did, but it's, but it's escaped me. Um, I, I, I think what you've articulated is really interesting and really important. And from a Hollywood, I mean, I'm at my my day job right now. I work at a pretty giant post-production house, one of the biggest in, in the world. So like I'm literally in it 24 hours a day, seven days a week with my own projects and between my day job. But as like a commodity, right, we're selling stories and like how those stories have been framed up historically. 
versus what you're saying storytelling actually can be and should be for the world. They're, they're not aligned. Is it part of the Blacklist's mission to bring more awareness and responsibility to the people who are greenlighting movies? I wouldn't say that I view it necessarily as our responsibility. Um, I think that what the Blacklist is designed to do is create a more perfect meritocracy in the industry vis-a-vis -vis the writing talent that is identified and selected for resources to be invested into them. Um, I think part of the problem fundamentally is that, you know, we talked before about like how the industry is organized vis-a-vis -vis, like finding the stories and finding the storytellers. And it's very, it's a very passive approach. You'll come to us and we'll identify you as being talented. And the result of that is a, a general lack of diversity in the industry. And that lack of diversity exists primarily because the social networks, the guide sort of being selected and the determination of whether you have merit are, are very calcified and very narrow. And so what I want the blacklist to be able to do is just say, look, we went out everywhere and found everybody good. And here's everybody good. So if you invest in them, you're going to get more diversity. You're going to get better stories. You're going to get more money because the best stories then deliver you better economic results. Um, now, that requires that the people who are the ones selecting the stories are also capable of understanding their role in capitalism, in the, the ecosystem of making commercial movies and, and what that means and how to identify good stuff. They need to be able to recognize the next Ava DuVernay with the same quickness and, and frequency that they recognize the next, um, you know, uh, Russo brothers. Um, and they need to be able to identify both. Um, so I, I hope the industry solves that problem. I think the, the, the problem that the blacklist is sort of uh, circumscribed as being what we're trying to focus on is specifically saying, hey, what if it was possible that every writer who was talented had an opportunity to, to show that they were talented? And if they were, they would have a direct route into being, you know, right in front of the people who can change their lives and invest in them uh, as creative partners. Do you have any personal stories of um, writers like that um, who were put in front of the people, the powers that be, who could like take them and, you know, launch their careers or move them to the next level and then just not I mean, working out because of the intransigence of the industry? Um. I don't think I, I I don't think I have a story of somebody that I'm just like oh yeah that person's brilliant they got put in front of people and it didn't work out I don't know that I'd share it under their name if I did, um, but what I'd say is those folks are gonna have a shot how they choose to engage with producers agents how they treat other people how whether they can make right the next thing that's gonna come that's that's their responsibility right. But I believe that if they have great talent, they have a right to have to, to solve those problems for themselves. Um, and I think there are tons of examples of writers who are completely outside of the system who, because of the Blacklist website, well, with the aid of the Blacklist website, because their script was great, were able to have opportunities that befit their talent. My favorite recent example was a writer from uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, who wrote a script about John Madden. Uh, it was a biopic of John Madden. And I remember this one well, because I remember getting an email one morning from Todd Black, Academy Award nominated producer saying, hey, I read the script on the Blacklist website, but there's no contact information on the script. Can you put me in touch with the writer? I'm, I'm always sort of double opt-in about introductions. So I was like, I absolutely will, but let me check with him first that I can share your email. I'm sure he will want to, but like, let me check. 
And of course, the writer was very excited about that. I connected him and Todd. Todd got involved, optioned the script, sold it to Amazon. The script made the annual blacklist, and Will Ferrell was just announced to play uh, John Madden in that movie, right? And that writer still lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. And that is as it should be, right? If you can write something great, there should be a mechanism where for very little money, as little as humanly possible, you can get feedback on that thing, make it better. And once it pops, everybody should know about it and they should be calling you, not you calling them, begging them to pay attention to you. Because you, you know, now, and this is sort of where the social currency thing comes back in, someone that the industry trusts, in this case, the blacklist, has said, now nah, this is worth your time. But it didn't require you to it didn't require you to move to LA. It didn't require you to know Franklin Leonard personally. It didn't require you to know anybody personally. It just required you to have written a fire script and either pay the the hosting and evaluation fee or apply for a fee waiver on the website. What an incredible service, man. Um, do you, you do you feel do you allow do you allow yourself and do you feel great about what you've built and the lives you've changed and the way you're helping people? have careers and get their stories seen? I, I think I'm very proud of the work that my entire team has done, right? Like it's not, when I first started the Blacklist, it was just me running pivot tables in Excel and like doing the annual list. But like I now we're a company, there's a bunch of us working together and I'm consistently incredibly proud of the work that my team is doing. You know, whether it's people, you know, Megan Halpern running the labs or Kate Hagen um, running our diversity list or Shelby Covent sort of overseeing our readers and like really improving the process by which we manage those. You know, Claire uh, Austin Kulat supporting the labs or Lisa, uh, who's my new assistant, you know, keeping the trains running on time. I'm very proud of the work that we've done collectively. Unfortunately, my brain is structured such that I am always focused on what we could be doing better, how we could be doing more, um, and all of the problems and sort of uh, inefficiencies that I see in the system that result in me uh, not having as many good movies and television to watch when I don't want to leave my house at home. Uh, so I tend to focus more on that than I do on, look at everything amazing we've done. Um, but I'm definitely proud of the work we've done. And I think I'm most proud of the fact that the writing community as a whole uh, seems to appreciate and value the work that we do. Like the, the high point of my career, unfortunately, probably has already happened, which was the Writers Guild of America East giving me award for elevating the honor and dignity of screenwriters, right? Like, I don't know that anything else, any award that I would receive would mean more to me than writers as a group saying, job well done. I, I want to echo shout out to your assistant, Elisa, for organizing yeah, all this. She's, she was so, she was so on it. I got a really strong team, man. Like I really, like if, if nothing else, uh, and, and more credit, I think because I'm the figurehead of the thing, I get a lot of credit, but like certainly more credit should go to them because, uh, Lord knows I can't do it myself and they're doing the lion's share of it. So. So in addition to everyone on your team who all sounds amazing and the, the website is great. If our listeners are, have not checked the website out yet, please check it out. Um, you've just rolled out a couple new features on the website um, that I wanted to talk about, but I also wanted to ask, so this is going to be a kind of a compound thing. Who do you admire in the industry that's not on your team? And what are some of the features that you've just rolled out for the blacklist um, that you can talk about that are kind of cool? And I have a couple if you don't remember them all. So that is where we're going to end our episode for this week. We'll get the rest of our conversation with Franklin finished up in the next episode. 
Before we go, I do want to share that The Blacklist is partnering with Ed Solomon and a few other really heavy hitter writers. If you don't know who Ed Solomon is, he wrote Men in Black, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, amongst a couple others. Um, and they're doing a series of Zoom conversations about the craft and life of screenwriters. These will be free to attend with the request that attendees donate whatever they can, if they can, to one of the many strike funds which provide assistance to writers and supporting staff. These Zoom conversations will start June 29th. Um, you can check out blacklist.com slash word by word for more information, or you can check out any of their socials that'll have details for it. Thanks for listening. If you're on the fence about subscribing, know that a portion of all subscription fees go toward the nonprofit Young Storytellers, raising voices one story at a time.